Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifsch-Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medievalist Erica Harlitz-Kern for something a little different today, since the two of us are going to have a bit of a conversation about the work of being public medievalists. So Erica, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So why don't we get started by having you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, including your academic research and teaching and things along those lines. Okay. Yeah. So I am originally from Sweden and I didn't move to the United States until after I had my doctor's degree. So all Mm -hmm. my degrees are from Swedish universities. Okay. So my PhD is from the University of Gothenburg and my dissertation was, I guess you could call it somewhere between local and regional history. So it's Mm -hmm. not something that I've been able to sort of capitalize on Mm-hmm. here in the United States, because nobody really cares about what I wrote about. <laughs> it's medieval Sweden, medieval Norway, but it has nothing to do with Vikings. So, you know, mm. there's no very limited interest. Um, I think very few people realize there's anything that happened in medieval Sweden or Norway that's not about the Vikings. Yeah. And what's really interesting in is that if you if you actually go to Scandinavia and you want to do, you know, Viking studies at a university, mm-hmm. you will become an archaeologist. It's mm. not part of history at all. If you're a medievalist in Sweden, you do not do the Vikings. Interesting. So that's something that Europeans and Americans, other Europeans and Americans came up with that you can sort of bake the Vikings into the Middle Ages. If Mm -hmm. you go to Norway, you are not necessarily a historian doing it. And in Sweden, absolutely Uh not. So you're going to be in the ground digging stuff. Okay. What specifically do you work, was the project on then and what kinds of sources were you working with? Well, having said that, I ended up having to do an interdisciplinary dissertation. What I did is that I... I wrote my dissertation about a place in West Sweden called Lördöse. So even there, you see, I mean, it has two letters in it that doesn't exist in English. So it's like, <laughs> not something you build a career on. I, I do have to admit that as a Mediterraneanist, mostly working in Romance languages, I do not have a guess about how I would spell that, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> so... And the thing is that this place today is like a tiny little village with a beautiful museum. Mm-hmm. But in the Middle Ages, specifically in the 13th and first half of the 14th century, it was one of Sweden's most important Hmm. trade towns with connections to the Hanseatic League. Mm -hmm. And then because of, you know, wars and borders and, you know, political shifts going on in 1646, it was burnt down in yet another war between Sweden and Denmark. And Uh Queen Christina of Sweden decided that, no, you're not going to rebuild your town. You have to move elsewhere. And then it's just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is that, you know, when it comes to archaeology it's an absolute gold mine it's located mm-hmm. uh, right next to one of the main rivers in sweden mm-hmm. uh, the um, ground is is clay based it is saturated mm-hmm. with water so you know you have like 15 feet of cultural layers from wow. the 11th century to the 17th century to go through i mean it's an oh, wow. absolute gold mine mm-hmm. but when it comes to history it's first mentioned in a Swedish diploma in the 1260s. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. So for me to say anything about the first 200 years, I needed mm-hmm. to, you know, I needed to dig into archaeology. I needed yeah. to, I need to read Norse sagas, which in Sweden mm-hmm. does not really qualify as primary sources. Right, right. So that's what I, that's what I did. I explained, you know, why this uh, town came to be, why it grew and why mm-hmm. it, you know, shrunk and eventually disappeared. And then I created a theory to explain urban development, because that's basically mm-hmm. what it was, the, mm-hmm. the interplay between uh, urbanization processes and the urbanization process and the state formation process mm-hmm. that was going on. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I did as my, as my dissertation. And, you know, locally and regionally, that was, that was perfectly fine. Uh-huh. You know, my, when I, when I had the uh, dissertations have a little bit of different uh, status in Sweden than the, what they do here. So mm-hmm. there, they are actually your first book. Right. So, you know, you do a press release and, you know, so they mentioned it on the local news that here's mm-hmm. a, you know, interpretation of this place but uh, outside of west sweden east norway yeah limited interest <laughs> uh-huh and and here by the way to clarify for our read for our listeners who are not academics so often one's dissertation sort of transforms into one's first book but i would say generally in an american context we would do a lot of rewriting before it that actually became something that we would call our first book so you know yes. i finished my dissertation Oh, what year is it? I finished my dissertation five years ago, and the book is coming out uh, in just uh, actually a couple of weeks. So, oh, nice, um, yeah, yes, which is very exciting. So, yeah, yeah so there's a kind of much more of a of a kind of transition and revision and editing process as opposed to just that is book number one. Yeah, yeah, because the day that we defend our dissertation, uh, we have the book printed. So wow. even though you know we we go through this you know rigorous process of of having someone discuss the book with us you won't get to that point unless your department knows that you know you will defend yourself well enough to pass right right that's interesting so is it generally the press is it a press associated with your university then that kind of does up like a formal printing of it or yeah so that's also a little bit different uh university presses don't really exist okay Uh, so it's either through you know a regular publisher with an Mm -hmm. you know an academic section uh Mm -hmm. or i published it through the department okay okay hmm interesting yeah it's completely different yeah no it's just such a different process yeah i mean and the thing is that all universities are public universities that are like maybe two universities that you could call private but everyone else all other universities are public universities which means that you know we have to show the taxpayers what we're doing so Mm -hmm. all dissertation defenses are open to the public Hmm. they are advertised to the public and the public are allowed to you know come listen ask questions engage so yeah i had about 200 people at my defense really (laughs) wow so history (laughs) Oh, wow. So I mean, so who are the people? They're just people from the community who are just interested in scholarship that's being done about, you know, their their region or their area? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was family, friends. It was, you know, people from the department, some students, but also, you know, the the general public came and Mm. and, uh, listened to a uh, Norwegian urban historian pummel me to pieces. (laughs) 
<laughs> and did so do they have an opportunity to ask you questions as well the general audience yes absolutely because once the the defense is done it's it's open to mm -hmm. the audience so anybody can ask a question oh wow and so what kind do you remember what kinds of questions you get just what kind of things were were people interested in I have no remember. I have no recollection. <laughs> that's that's very that's very fair. I I actually didn't have a dissertation defense since that's a sort of odd quirk of Yale that they actually at least the history department used to not do a defense. Uh, they they do now, but I'm just out far enough that uh, I was okay. pre I was the pre defense era. But I have very few memories of things like my prospectus defense. Uh, so I yeah. Yeah, I, uh, the the it's only thing I remember is that, you know, he he was very tough on me. I developed tunnel vision and I had a cramp in my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I feel like those are the things that really kind of stick out in retrospect are the like little physical uncomfortabilities. Yes. <laughs> so how did you get into medieval history? What was it that inspired you to uh, kind of go on this particular path, which uh, as we as we both know, is not an especially common one? Right. It had to do with the town that I ended up uh, writing about because mm -hmm. as an undergrad, I did uh, 19th and 20th century labor history. Mm -hmm. So in Swedish universities, you write sort of what is a BA thesis and an MA thesis. And my BA thesis was about a labor union at a steel mill in my hometown mm -hmm. in the 1920s, uh, how mm -hmm. and why they went on strike. Mm -hmm. And my MA was about how the town council in my uh, hometown struggled to, let's see, which one did I choose? I wrote about the power struggle between my town council and the neighboring town council over a hospital okay. hmm. in the 1990s when Sweden went through a huge uh, economic crisis. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very modern. Yeah. Um, and then I took a break from uh, history and I worked for a couple of years in the performing arts, but I felt that, mm -hmm. you know, this is not for me. So my mom, for some reason, had entered a raffle with the local paper and she won two tickets to a medieval reenactment play. Hmm which took place at this museum in the little village of what used to be this huge town. Huh. Uh, and so we spent a day there. And after, you know, seeing all, you know, the museum and, you know, mm -hmm. seeing, seeing the play, I realized that, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I, I had, mm -hmm. um, because what guides me usually in my, in my research is it's the question not mm -hmm. the time period necessarily. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I've been able to jump. You know, I can go from mm -hmm. the 1990s to the year 1050 because I have a question that mm -hmm. uh, that drives me, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But the more I get into the Middle Ages, the more questions I have about the Middle Ages because yeah. it is such a fascinating time period that you start mm -hmm. asking yourself all these other things, right? Mm -hmm. But when I started uh, as a as a doctoral student at University of Gothenburg, I noticed that the other medievalist students who were there, they were like, they had been into, it's like, ah, oh, the Middle Ages. I found the Middle Ages when I read Lord of the Rings. And when I was like, 12, well, I've always been fascinated with the, you know, and I, and I was just like, Swedish labor unions. 
Anybody? <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so I haven't been this, you know, hardcore uh, minimalist. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the research question, you know, I question yeah. pops up and I need to find the answer. And so far, uh, the questions have been about the Middle Ages. Yeah, and then it's also then so interesting as you kind of think about then how how academic careers progress and, of course, the ways in which certainly I would say in the U.S. and U.S. academia, at least, the expectation is that if you get hired for a particular position, those positions often have some kind of chronological and or geographical specification. And the assumption is that you kind of stay there at least until somebody gives you tenure and you can sort of do whatever you want. Right, right. Yeah. Now, uh, it's it's sort of similar in in Sweden also that the the jobs that you apply for is in history, but with emphasis mm-hmm. on and then it, tenure doesn't exist as such, but you know uh-huh. that, you know, you have your job. Right. Yeah. It's very, very difficult yeah. to, to lose your job. Mm-hmm. You're not as protected as with tenure, but you are like 90 percent, mm-hmm. you know, to to 10 years, 100%, I would say. Okay. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about where you are now and what kinds of things you do in terms of teaching as well before we get into uh, our work as public medievalists. All right. So as I mentioned, I'm at Florida International University in Miami. It is one of uh, the largest public universities in the United States. We serve mostly the local South Florida area. So most of our students are not from out of state. So we are a uh, what is called an HSI institution, which is a Hispanic serving institution. Mm -hmm. And for a university to be designated as an HSI, you have to have 25% of the student body to be of uh, Hispanic or Latin American Mm -hmm. Caribbean ancestry. And for us, it's about 75%. And most of those are uh, of Cuban descent. So it's a uh, it's a very uh, Caribbean and Latin American mm-hmm. oriented environment. And it's absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So I'm teaching at the Department of History, I'm teaching at the Honors College, and at the Department of History, I am teaching Ancient History, a survey course. Uh, it's one of those uh, courses that all students need to take. Mm-hmm. The University Core Curriculum course in Ancient History. And then this semester, I am also teaching an upper level course in the History of the Reformation. We're looking from 1500 to 1660. So it's not really medieval, but I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's still, you know, my main interest is from sort of, you know, the 750 to 1660. That's where I am, mm-hmm. sort of. So I'm bridging both Viking Age, Middle Age, medieval mm-hmm. and early modern. And then I am also teaching the freshman seminar at the Honors College, which is a one year course in, you know, uh, interdisciplinary uh, studies. And I am also teaching a course for the Honors College called the History of History, where mm-hmm. which is a course in historiography, which is a, a an interest of mine that I have developed after uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, sort of got going in my ac- academic career, because I noticed when I wrote my dissertation that there was so much weird stuff being said about this town. Yeah, that you know we we have to we have to have a discussion because it turns uh-huh. out that the play that I went to see the reenactment play mm-hmm. there's actually no historical evidence for that event having taken place in that town. Really? We know the event took place, 
But when uh-huh. you really start looking into the medieval sources, there is no mm-hmm. evidence whatsoever that it actually took Ow. place in that town. So I'm basically nuking my own, you know, origin story. <laughs> But I feel like there is so much of that. And especially I think when you do really local histories, you come across such uh, such kind of odd stuff. I mean, I, I still find it jarring that there's uh, one of the towns that I work on that I've worked on for my dissertation. And that's one of the towns I focus on for my first book. There's now an excellent new book on the Jewish community of that town. But before that excellent new book, there was one book on the Jewish community of this town, which was written in uh, the early 20th century, and which at some point started talking about how the Jews' natural inclinations and greed predisposed them to being the, the lenders of the town. So, um, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah so we often come across a lot of odd things in the historiography and the writings of professionals as well as in the popular imagination of the medieval past absolutely absolutely and 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 how it becomes truth because there is nothing Mm -hmm. else and then because I mean it's the same thing with me with with what I was doing because Mm um what had happened is that there was one person who was very very dedicated you know to he dedicated his entire professional life to this town he's the one who created the museum and you know he he did most of the excavations but he wasn't a trained archaeologist he Mm -hmm. didn't practice any kind of critical thinking so you could tell that you know he was romanticizing this place Uh and he was you know drawing conclusions and then when you start looking into the the few people that came before him, they had made stuff up and which then became, you know, like truth. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm just sitting there. It's like how, and at the same time, you know, you don't want to be this, this, you know, academic, you know, elite expert coming in, telling the locals that everything that they, right. think they know is based on, uh, you know, it's not true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because I, I destroyed so many, so many ideas about what Mm -hmm. this place was, you know, already with my book. And then I, you know, started digging into the fact that, you know, this big thing that they, that they, you know, uh, perform for the locals every year Mm -hmm. probably didn't even happen there. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you do? You're nuking the entire tourist industry in that town. Right, right. And it's something that, you know, it's in this particular case, right, that it has a real practical economic impact, I think also culturally and psychologically, the Middle Ages looms large in imaginations for a lot of uh, national identities, local identities, especially, uh, well, in places where there is, you know, that particular kind of medieval past, uh, not so much in the United States necessarily, but obviously other ways in which groups in the United States kind of think back to a medieval past, and it is something that, you know, people care deeply about often uh, in ways that can then be very complicated for us to engage with as academics. Yeah, absolutely. And I also noticed that, you know, when I started working on, you know, looking at the origins of this town is that it is more likely that because in, in traditional history writing, it is mm-hmm. it's considered that in the 11th century, Sweden had three different towns. And, you know, the town that I'm looking at was one of them. Mm-hmm. That it was sort of Swedish outpost against, uh, you know, the uh, consolidating Norwegian kingdom. Because uh-huh. it's right on the border. But when you start looking into the archaeology and when you start looking into, you know, where does it appear in writing? You know, the fact that the earliest 
mention of it in writing are in Norwegian sources. Uh, the earliest, you know, minting activities, minting in the Middle Ages is always connected mm-hmm. to, you know, royalty. The earliest minting is Norwegian. The artifacts are Western oriented towards the Atlantic and not to the Baltic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spoke to the archaeologists there and they were some, you know, they were also on this, you know, trail that maybe this was a Norwegian town first. Oh, wow. So what I did then is basically I, I robbed Sweden mm-hmm. of one of its earliest urban centers. So mm-hmm. instead of having three, there's now two. So I noticed that when I published the book that I kept being invited by archaeologists to speak. But uh-huh. historian, medievalists and historians were not interested at all because I was, I was breaking up the idea you know, of the, mm-hmm. the paradigm of, of how the Swedish nation state came together by yeah. saying that one of the towns actually originally was Norwegian. And then sometime in the 13th century, it became Swedish. And I also noticed mm-hmm. that you know, when, when book orders started coming in, uh, the National Library in Oslo ordered more copies than the National Library in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. so that's you know that's saying something but yeah uh, yeah but I but you know again you know it's you are breaking these uh dreams and these fantasies and and identities that you know this this town has considered itself one of the oldest towns in Sweden and suddenly I'm coming Mm -hmm. there it's like no actually you're Norwegian right (laughs) right yeah which is I mean which is such important work I mean because I think thinking about you know how a lot of these national mythologies are constructed and how the way that they use the medieval past is often much more about the present than it or the or or the modern world at least than it is about the middle ages Mm -hmm. uh, which is I think such important work but then it also does mean at times coming into conflict with people who have these kind of passions around uh, around this narrative yeah absolutely so that is, I think, a good lead into talking in particular about the the work that we do as public medievalists. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what it is that you kind of do in, in that vein? So essentially, what kind of work do you do that is directly kind of speaking to a, a broader public audience? Yeah, so what I do is that I I work as a freelance writer and a book reviewer and I also have my own blog I call it the boomerang because I'm always coming back Uh, I have my own blog called the boomerang I've run it since 2013 Uh, I started it as a thing to do after I had just moved here to the United States and I had you know I didn't have anything I didn't know mm-hmm. anybody. I didn't have a job. I was waiting for, you know, immigration to come through so that I could start working. And the, the first year, I didn't have a driver's license, mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. So I started the blog, you know, to keep to keep myself going, basically. Yeah. And I've had it now since 2013. And there I write about, that's probably where I let my, you know, the broadest aspects of my history interest you know bloom basically so I have a blog I write on it every Friday there's a new Mm -hmm. post coming which is has something to do with history one way or another you know sometimes I review books on there the post that I wrote last this week on Friday was about the Museum of Rex 
shipwrecks mm-hmm. in uh, Stockholm. It's dedicated entirely to shipwrecks in the Baltic Sea, hmm. and it is a museum without objects. Ha! So it's very, very fascinating. You can see sort of where mm-hmm. museums might be headed, you know, using yeah. TVs and holograms instead of, you know, actually, you know, digging mm-hmm. stuff up and, just, you know, disrupting a, 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 lo- a location. It was very yeah. fascinating. So that's the latest post on there. I also pitch ideas and write articles for uh, media outlets. I have published several articles for the Daily Beast mm-hmm. uh, and several for the week. And I had a series of articles for Tor.com, which is a science fiction and a fantasy mm-hmm. publisher where I talked about history and uh, science fiction and uh, mm-hmm. fantasy. And what I wrote about there was how speculative fiction authors are using the tools of history. So I'm not really talking about, mm-hmm. you know, what is, where can you find the Middle Ages in the Lord of the Rings? I was uh-huh. talking about how N.K. Jemison is using primary sources in mm-hmm. her trilogies, or I am talking about uh, how uh, Malka Older is using big data in her mm-hmm trilogies and uh, use of footnotes how you can manipulate the reader by mm-hmm. using footnotes and having two yeah. different narratives and the footnotes like historians sometimes do uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> Jonathan <laughs> Strange and Mr. Norell is I think maybe my favorite example of that yes exactly because if you read the footnotes then you realize who's actually telling the story and how right. it's supposed to be read and you know and Hanya Hanya Yanagihara is doing it she's excellent mm-hmm. in that people in the trees the way that she's using footnotes is just like you. Uh, she's the book itself. She's very good at manipulating her readers. If you haven't read her her novels, I I highly recommend I them. Actually, and I'll have to check her out. Yeah, she's she's excellent at manipulating uh, readers, specifically using time to start. You know, when you start really thinking about the timelines in her stories, you realize mm-hmm. that this is I'm reading something completely different. And in hmm. her uh, debut novel, The People in the Trees, she's using footnotes in a way that you really start wondering, it's like, who is writing this book? This is a first person narrative, but mm-hmm. who is really writing this? Because you can huh. tell that there is a different voice in the footnotes. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm actually literally uh, putting this on uh, my <laughs> reading list right now. You said The People in the Trees? Yes, Uh, She also wrote A Little Life, which when I started looking into the Scandinavian backstory of one of the Mm -hmm. characters, uh, I I noticed that, you know, his Scandinavian backstory did not make sense. Hmm. And then I started, you know, I started reading the novel in a different way when I realized Mm -hmm. that. And that's when I discovered that when you write, when you're reading literary fiction, it's modern, but usually it's it's in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So the book ends sometime before or at the time when the author stops writing right right so if a book comes out in 2022 then you can then you know the the story sort of ends someone maybe 2021 Mm -hmm. but when i started looking into the backstory the historic the history of the backstory of this scandinavian character i realized that the book came out in 2014 Mm-hmm. And the story starts in 2014. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so none of this has happened yet? Huh. 
this and it's like this is speculative fiction the whole book mm-hmm. takes place in the future so right now in 2022 this book has been going on for eight years yeah it's still happening hmm. but it's it's marketed as literary fiction right oh that's so interesting and when it comes to the Daily Beast, I've sort of niched myself there. So I'm a, I'm a bit more modern there. I'm talking mm-hmm. about, I'm writing about white supremacy. I'm writing mm-hmm. about dictatorships. Uh, my latest piece for them was in March. And I wrote about how uh, the Finnish Winter War can uh, give us an historical example of how it's possible mm-hmm. for an underdog to beat Russia when they mm-hmm. invade. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also talked about uh, how Vikings are appropriated by the the white supremacy movement. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about how Hitler uh, used uh, the Versailles peace as mm-hmm. the template for what he wanted to do. So everything that was in the Versailles peace, you can see yeah. that he's sort of, you know, going through one by one by one mm-hmm. things that, you know, he is he's he's going against. Right. Everything that he does mm-hmm. was to to sort of nullify what was in the Versailles piece. So you could, if you read, mm-hmm. read the Versailles piece, you sort of have his program right there. Yeah. No, and I actually, it's, I always find it interesting and in that just in terms of thinking about how in a lot of ways, there is this kind of strange way in which Hitler is sort of not very, not very original that he kind of has so many sort of obvious sources. Um, I teach a course on Jews, money and finance and historical perspective. And it's, uh, it goes chronological. And it's, of course, it goes from antiquity to the present. And which means the whole semester, you know, everybody's kind of like, when are we going to get to Hitler? Um, (laughs) But it also means that by the time we do, they're all able to say, oh, all of the economic anti-Semitism that is so central to Hitler's program None of that is new. He's all, he's very clearly everything has these medieval and early modern antecedents. Yes, exactly. I mean, you have the ghettos, you have the yellow stars. I mean, nothing is new. I mean, you can, you can, you can argue that Hitler knew his history is just that he bastardized it. Right. Which is, of course, something that we think about in a contemporary context with uh, with Mott, with contemporary white supremacists as well, of course. Yes. That they're absolutely. often not very good at history in addition to uh, using it for horrible ends. So that certainly is kind of one part I know of, you know, one of the values that I see in public history and in term, in public medievalism in particular. But I'd love for you to say a little more about, about kind of how you got into the work that you do in public history and about, and what is it about that that you think is important enough to be worth, to be worth the time you put into it, right? Because of course, as we'll talk about a little bit more later, we have a lot of demands on our time as academics, a lot of things that we are expected to do in progress toward tenure, for example. Why is it that this is something that you you have kept up with and that you continue to find valuable as a part of your work as a medievalist and a historian? I think it's a matter of widening the conversation. So I've always, from the beginning, especially when I teach, uh, even as when I taught as a doctoral student, I always made sure to connect the past with the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, as as we were talking, you know, right now, where does you know this white supremacist appropriation of the Middle Ages come from? Or yeah. you know, we're looking at antisemitism in twenty twenty two; it's on the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it? You know, but when you start looking into it, it's the same old, it's just new packaging, right? Mm -hmm. So I've always been uh, very 
con- uh, concerned about connecting the present to mm-hmm. to the past. It's also a way of of uh, showing that things that we take for granted, I mean, comes from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So especially in popular culture, because popular culture looks innocuous, mm-hmm. right? So if we watch a Marvel movie, we we think it's just entertainment that we just turn off our brains and it's explosions and it's one-liners and you know, it's, it's fun. Mm -hmm. But when we, when you really start looking at, for example, what kind of worldview Mm -hmm. is being presented in the Marvel comic universe movies as a whole, you realize that there's actually problems there. Yeah. What kind of world do they want us to, to, um, you know, to accept. And uh, one of the movies, I think, particularly here, it is Black Panther. Mm -hmm. Because when you're looking at uh, T'Challa versus Eric Killmonger, Mm -hmm. uh, Eric Killmonger is the one who is criticizing American imperialism in the world. Mm -hmm. T'Challa is, you know, against him. And then in the end, Eric Killmonger is killed for his views and T'Challa opens a community center in Mm -hmm. Portland. What does that tell us? Right. So if we know the history behind, you know, this, we can, you know, discuss it. So I, I do it because I want to open up the, the, um, I want to open up a wider conversation, a deeper conversation about things that we take for granted, things that we think are innocuous and just Mm -hmm. for fun. It's a matter of uh, critical thinking, not taking stuff on a safe, you know, on, on face value without, you know, at the same time, pandering to conspiracy theorists, right? right they claim right. to do the same thing. They claim that they are the critical thinkers. They claim that they right. are revealing the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also because I feel that, you know, it's fun to share. I love history. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I, you know, come across something that, you know, is fascinating, I want to share it. Mm-hmm. I want to tell people. And I feel this sort of almost like existential angst if I don't mm-hmm. get to tell you, you know? I found mm-hmm. this amazing thing and I have to tell you. And if I don't tell you, I'm going to explode. Um, <laughs> um, which yeah. I, I don't have about other things. You know, I love mm-hmm. music and I love movies. But, you know, if I watch a good movie, I don't have to go on Twitter and tell you about it. But if I see, you know, this amazing floor mosaic from 4th century BCE Macedonia, I will tweet it fast because you mm-hmm. need to know this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that it is. And I think it is so exciting, especially as people who who work on an era, which uh, certainly in the United States is either not taught at all or very poorly taught at the high school level. And uh, that, you know, it's an area that very few people really know much about unless for whatever reason they've made the choice to kind of actively seek out information about it. And even if they do that, there's a good chance that they've come across maybe some not totally accurate information, depending on, you know, what sources they've been using. And so with all of that, I think there is just this real kind of fun and excitement that I, you know, I, I just really, you know, love being at parties and getting to tell people about the foreskin of Christ. There's something so exciting about that, <laughs> which, I, yeah. which I think makes me fun at parties. Other people might disagree. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many and there's so many crazy things because we mm-hmm. have this idea about what the past is like and especially what the Middle Ages are like. But the Middle Ages are even crazier than we can, you know, possibly imagine, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just so 
yeah, it's a it's a it's a fascinating time period. Absolutely fascinating yeah. time period. And and it and people think that they come up with exciting things, mm-hmm. you know, like fiction or movies or whatever. But as soon as you start looking into medieval history, it always trumps fiction. Always. Yes. I I say that all the time on this podcast, actually, when I'm talking about films that invent things or that have some kind of version of the story, which is heavily fictionalized. And it almost always, I think the version that they've come up with is less interesting than what actually happened or that there's a story that instead that could have been told instead of the fictional story, there's a story that's actually based in real ideas or or events uh, or, you know, works of literature that, you know, from the medieval past, that, that would be, that would be, you know, much more interesting than the thing that, you know, some, some guy has come up with, because it's usually a guy in the 21st century in terms of how he thinks that he wants to depict the medieval past. Yeah. And I also think that, uh, because we have this idea that, you know, if you are, I think that a lot of uh, these authors and uh, movie writers they sort of make it easy on themselves mm-hmm. that uh, they or they think they are making it easy on themselves, you know, coming up with something new rather than doing uh, the research. But what happens instead is that they just drain it of all, you know, of all the color yeah. of mm-hmm. all kinds. Right. If, because mm-hmm. for, for, for some reason, the Middle Ages is uh, viewed as this, you know, drab, colorless, mm-hmm. you know, non-diverse world is it's very Mm -hmm. flat and I've also noticed that for some reason I was uh, I was reading a historical uh, fiction novel that took place in uh, 14th century England just after the first wave of the Black Plague it was 1350s Mm -hmm. something and for some reason they always decide that the, the main character has lost faith Mm-hmm. And I don't understand mm-hmm. that because it's it's the it's the faith and the and the medieval interpretation of you know Christianity or Judaism mm-hmm. or Islam that that makes this world so fantastic. Yeah, because they have a more supernatural view mm-hmm. of religion than we do. So yeah. when you have the main character is a knight who has lost faith. Mm-hmm. that's a boring night yeah yeah <laughs> especially if you know you're not really grappling right with I mean I think it could be interesting to tell that story but only if you're really grappling with what that actually mean for being that person who has that experience in that real world yeah. where so much is taken for granted yeah And I often find that even in things where they kind of have the outlines of some sort of real historical event, I often find that I I really wish somebody kind of sat down and actually did some minor research in medieval social and cultural history, just because that's, I mean, that's what I, and that's what I do. I do social and cultural history, and that's what I tend to find most exciting about the Middle Ages ultimately is not just, you know, well, certainly not battles. I, as I've said many times in this podcast, I'm often very bored by military history, but, but ultimately, you know, it's not the battles or the kings and queens or the big political events that I find most interesting about the medieval past. It's what people are actually doing on an everyday level. And that texture of everyday life is something that 
you know, there are a lot of books out there about this and a lot of work that people are doing to try and uncover that. And that almost never shows up in a really deep or meaningful way in films set in the Middle Ages or novels often for that matter, even. Yeah, no, it's 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 such a layered and it's also just like we are today, we are walking contradictions. Mm-hmm. So when you start, you know, removing things or not digging deep into things, you are uh, you are simplifying the Middle Ages. You're 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 turning it into this two dimensional world rather than a mm-hmm. three or four dimensional world the way that uh, the way that they they saw it. Yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, I mean, a lot of the times when whenever there's something new coming up, when it comes to, you know, popular culture and, and the Middle Ages. And I'm just like, why don't you just go to the source? <laughs> just save yourself so much work. <laughs> just read three books, just like three books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this work that we do as public historians, as public medievalists is something certainly that we obviously have other colleagues who do this also and who do this very well, but it's certainly not something that all medievalists or historians do. Is this something that you feel that you have, that you have a responsibility to do? Is this something that you think is, is an important, is or should be an important part of our work? And in fact, you know, our jobs potentially even as, as medievalists or as historians? I think it's very important, but I also would say that I don't think that everybody should do it Mm -hmm. because if we need historians and you know other academics who are experts who are Mm -hmm. writing on an expert level their books are theory laden they are dense they are deep in detail they are Mm -hmm. almost esoteric we need that because that is where the production of new knowledge Mm -hmm. is happening at the same time we need people like you and me who know how to translate this Mm-hmm. to the general public because it is yeah. two different types of skill sets it's two different yes. types of writing it's two different types of using language it's two different types of using medium and it's two different ways of engaging and viewing your audience mm-hmm. and what what you can expect from your audience and how to communicate yeah. with your audience so I don't think that every medievalist needs to have public outreach Mm -hmm. not every medievalist needs to be on twitter or tiktok or instagram but we do need medievalists with a foot in both worlds because when you have people who are interested in the middle ages but who are not scholars and writing for the public it shows because yes usually something there's something there that doesn't get to if it has something to do with how to interpret a research mm-hmm. or how to evaluate a primary source or how to put something into context you can tell that the, that there is something that is that is missing but if you mm-hmm. have people that can engage fully with the most esoteric research that will only have three readers every <laughs> 10 years and then translate that to mm-hmm. something that the public can engage in and find interesting and understand and wrap their head around and you know draw their own conclusions that those are two completely uh, different skills so you need people who, who can bridge that mm-hmm. that's how yeah. i see it yeah, which is such a challenge. And it's I know something that I think about a lot and that I, you know, my my book that is coming out very shortly is very much kind of one of those books that I, 
think will probably be purchased by, you know, seven libraries and eventually I will get, you know, 10, you know, a $10 royalty check in three years or something like that. You know, but that I, and first of all, I enjoy talking about, you know, other things as well, right? And sharing other ways in which the medieval past is something that can be interesting and relevant. But that also I've actually found it really interesting how much things related to my research actually can come up in other conversations. And in particular, uh, so I, my work is mostly on women and gender. And uh, this book that I have coming out is about women's work in the 13th and 14th centuries. And especially in our current context, where of course we are being confronted with some pretty radical uh, reversals of progress that have been made in the area of uh, reproductive rights, of course, in particular, I often kind of find it interesting that, well, I mean, actually, if I look at the the work that I do, it often also kind of adds to this em- like emphasis on the fact that progress isn't linear, that I'm looking at a context where women had certain kinds of uh, property rights uh, that, you know, women certainly can own property, women can take out loans, and these are things that women could not take for granted that they could legally do in many places in the United States in the 1950s. Yeah, no, absolutely, because what it shows is that, because we have this idea that our present is how it has always been. Mm Mm-hmm. But by bringing up things like the examples that you mentioned, you you show that, no, there is a different way of doing this. Mm-hmm. But because, yeah. we, because research needs to be done a certain way so that we know that mm-hmm. this is a credible result, then that, you know, those books that uh, have a more niched audience, uh, they absolutely need to be uh, written. I mean, I yeah. sometimes compare you know, academic historians and public historians to uh, Formula One cars and family cars, (laughs) (laughs) right? You need to, because Formula One cars, they are, you know, the avant-garde of car technology, right? Mm -hmm. They are looking at aerodynamics. They're looking at, at, you know, transmission. They are looking at uh, tire durance, uh, fuel, consumption so that you can drive this monster of a car for Uh two hours without it breaking down at the highest Mm -hmm. speeds and what what the formula one teams are doing will then end up in your minivan with your Mm -hmm. kids and your dog 10 years down the road pun intended um and and it's the same thing so what is happening right now at universities in these you know more niched you know, more compartmentalized, more esoteric environments will be in the mainstream within 10 years, but they need to get to the mainstream through public historians. Yeah, yeah. And and I, and I think it is kind of interesting to think about, I mean, we, we have so many potentially kind of different different pieces to our work as academics, right? That the, the standard kind of trifecta of expectations for a tenure track position are that you're supposed to do research, teaching, and service. Those are three different areas that involve three different, three completely different skill sets. And not everybody has all three of those skill sets uh, who becomes an academic. And then, of course, if you're interested in doing something like public history, which, of course, does not typically formally count toward tenure expectations, that's an additional skill set that I think has overlaps with teaching, but also is distinct in various ways. There's a lot of struggle to to kind of balance all of those 
things. Uh, how, how have you found that experience of kind of balancing public history in particular with the, the other kinds of work that you do as an academic? Well, I'm not on the tenure track. So I have less expectations on me to do certain things because I, you know, I, I have colleagues, obviously, who are either tenured or tenure track, Mm -hmm. and they are uh, under a much heavier load than I am. So I have more leeway in what I can do. So if I want to write a book, for example, I don't have to think, you know, where will this take me in my university career? Do Mm -hmm. I have to fulfill a certain you know, criteria so that I will continue to be here at this department in a few years Mm -hmm. uh, from now. So I think that that way, uh, it's easier for me to balance, uh, Mm -hmm. because nobody expects anything from me in that Mm -hmm. way. I am not uh, expected to do as much service. uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't have to deliver certain things uh, when it comes to research at a certain Mm -hmm. point in time, or, you know, I don't have to write one article per year because it Mm -hmm. will go into my tenure portfolio I don't have to worry about those things so in that way it's actually it's it's easier to balance because I set my own balance so Mm -hmm. for the past three years I've been working on a book and it's a book that I want to write and I write it for myself Mm -hmm. my department hasn't told me that I need to write this book I don't have a deadline for this book so I mean it's it's ready to you know find a publisher when it's ready to find a publisher but at the same time you know if you're on the tenure track and you get tenure then you have you know certain stability uh, long-term stability which I don't have so that adds you know a different type of stress absolutely you know on on my situation right yeah that part that part of what you I mean that part of what you assume have to think about right is about how might in fact this public history work affect my my ability to continue to be in this position still right that uh I mean has that is that something that you do think about in terms of how how your institution might perceive your work in public history and how it might affect uh, decisions when it comes to renewal yeah I mean if I mean, I know that because I've chosen to do what I to be more uh, public facing mm-hmm. uh, rather than academic facing. I know that it makes it difficult for me to apply for formal positions because I don't mm-hmm. check the boxes. But so that that was something that that was actually a, a decision that I needed to to make. Mm-hmm. You know, where do I want to go and which path do I want to take? And I decided that since I am, I am happy to do public history and I find it rewarding, mm-hmm. I find it fun. And I also know that uh, because my terminal degree is not from an American university, that is mm-hmm. to my disadvantage. Uh-huh. So even if I would play, uh, you know, according to the tenure rules or tenure track rules, it probably would not get me where I wanted to go because mm-hmm. I have a degree from a university that very few people have heard of. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's known in Europe. Absolutely. It's one of you know the largest universities in the Nordic countries. So mm-hmm. in Europe, everybody knows of this university. Yeah. But here in the United States, it's unknown. It's not part of any mm-hmm. rankings because you, you know European universities and Swedish universities, they don't rank right. the yeah. way that American universities do. So mm-hmm. I know it's to my disadvantage, you know, just mm-hmm. they look at my CV, they see my degree and it's like, what's this? So it's a decision that I had to make, mm-hmm. basically, that, you know, where where do I want to put my energy? And I decided to to lean into public history 
based mm-hmm. on you know the the background that I have and and mm-hmm. uh it it took some soul searching you know because yeah. we we become doctoral students with a certain goal in mind what we want to yeah. do what kind of expectations we have and then you know life happens and we have to recalibrate mm-hmm. um, come up with new goals and find something you know where we can find a new happiness uh so so that's sort of uh, you know i know i know basically that i won't mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's a very very slim chance that i will ever end up on the tenure track mm-hmm and I know also that the more public history I do, the further uh-huh. away I get from it. Because mm-hmm. I do less of the or fewer of the things mm-hmm. that I need to do to be relevant yeah. on your track. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot about the fact that I, I do this podcast and I really enjoy doing this podcast. I very much have to be thoughtful about how much time I put into this podcast, that I don't have an unlimited amount of time to really focus on this uh, because I am on the tenure track. And that means that I have expectations in terms of publishing as well as, of course, teaching obligations and increasingly service obligations. Mm. And so, you know, it is something that I enjoy doing, uh, which which in practice probably means that what actually happens is that this is what I do instead of having free time. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that I sometimes also kind of actively try to sort of make connections between this and my teaching in various ways as well. I actually teach a course at the on uh, Medieval at the Movies, which was sort of my podcast turned into a class. And that also kind of, you know, makes it, you know, makes that kind of connection as well and allows me to kind of have, have work uh, kind of, you know, serve a double function in some ways. Mm. But yeah, but that is definitely a kind of challenge to figure out how to, how to appropriately balance all that and still fulfill these other obligations while also getting to do this thing that I find valuable and enjoy. Yeah. And I noticed also that after I made that decision, I became more, uh, it made me freer on social Mm -hmm. media. Yeah. I could speak more in my own voice because I didn't have mm-hmm. to worry about, you know, a tweet coming back to bite me. Yeah. Uh, so I could, you know, because when you, the further you go into public history, the more uh, you have to turn yourself, not really into a brand, uh, but into a profile. Yeah. And the, and the profile that you have to do, you have to create for yourself as a public historian is completely different from the profile that you need to have as an academic yeah. uh, historian. You know, I, I can express myself in a different way. I can even be very angry on mm-hmm. social media and, you know, drop a bomb or two. And I don't have to worry that that does not make me come across as, you know, being non-academic or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Yeah. So how has you how have you felt that your public facing work has has affected your relationship with the academic communities? Uh, so how do you how have you found that your colleagues, uh, you know, both at your institution and other medievalists tend to perceive that your work and what kind of responsibilities do you think you, we have to our colleagues in terms of, you know, if we, you know, it, I think we actually kind of talked about this a little bit that, you know, if you're, for example, publishing a book review, and it's, you know, by somebody who you have maybe some kind of professional relationship with, uh, what does that actually require of you in terms of both your responsibilities to your colleagues and to your audience? Yeah, so you have to make a choice, really. You know, who, who, do, who are you speaking to, right? Yeah. It's like when Ricky Gervais hosted the Golden Globes, you know, who am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the millions of people on the other side of the camera? Or am I speaking to the hundred people in the room? Mm-hmm. And he chose to speak to the hundred million people, you know, 
through the camera and it turned out to be the best Golden Globes awards ever mm-hmm. but the situation in the room was horrendous because everybody mm-hmm. was offended so you have to choose your you have to choose you know which audience are you speaking to so mm-hmm. this is also you know you have to this is another decision that you have to make so I mean where where is your where is your loyalty and mm-hmm. I realized that my loyalty is to my integrity Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to be a public historian, then I have to also have a, you know, a certain level of integrity to mm-hmm. the people who read my text. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I, I review books on uh, my blog uh, is that it's part of the, you know, widening the conversation and making research accessible to people mm-hmm. so that a book that is, you know, worthy of, of, of boosting doesn't disappear into a library Mm -hmm. and just sits on the shelf it can actually be be read because people who are generally interested in history can read academic books and and make sense of them and find them interesting so that is why i am reviewing books but at the same time if there is an issue with the book Mm -hmm. for my own integrity's sake if i'm going to be an authority on medieval history to the public I need to address Mm -hmm. issues with these books. Mm -hmm. And I think that what happens here then is that academia is a very hierarchical environment. Yeah. Where a full professor has more power, whether they want to admit it or not, whether they are aware of it or not, a full professor has more power than an adjunct. Absolutely. And... So when you are in the academic environment, you are expected to behave a certain way to Mm -hmm. your superiors because they have proven through what is, you know, quote unquote meritocracy Uh that, you know, they know better and, you know, they're more experienced and they have more knowledge. And here I am, you know, I'm not on the tenure track. I don't have a secure position. I write my blog. I book, I review books on blogs. So here I am, an adjunct instructor, talking about a very popular book by a full professor and mm-hmm. showing you that this is not what they say it is. Yeah. And that, I think that that can, you know, rub some people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, you know, and, and that potentially, you know, the language we might use and the way we talk about things, you know, could be, you know, could be really different. And, you know, and I will say, you know, I, I can, I can dunk on Ridley Scott all day because, uh, you know, Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott is almost certainly never going to have any impact on my future academic career. And I don't think that any of my fellow academics care if I dunk on Ridley Scott all day. But I, not that I'm never critical of other, you know, of other works of scholarship, but there is a certain, like, I wouldn't want to say on the podcast, especially when it comes to the work of other medieval historians, I don't want to say anything that I wouldn't actually feel comfortable saying, you know, in a footnote or in a book review, which is obviously, you know, a different, a different kind of level of, not that it can't involve criticism, but that's a different kind of criticism in a different tone from the criticism that I'm willing to do of films. Yeah, but uh, and the thing is that the academic book review is its own genre. It has yes. its own conventions. It needs to be written in a certain way. It needs to have a certain type of language. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that why so many uh, historians are you know, suspicious of public history is that we can't he and haw, we can't, you know, right. hum, and, you know, we have to be straight. So if there is something that is a problem in a book, and you write that in a book review, you can say that, you know, it seems as if the author has not considered, you know, right, it seems as if, right? Mm-hmm. That's how we express ourselves. But if you're writing a book review for a popular audience, you have to say, this is a problem. Yeah. And if you're an academic and you are used to hearing criticism being called, it seems as if uh, Uh it is likely that. (laughs) I wonder if perhaps the author could have talked more about X, Y, Z. Yes, exactly. But, you know, when you're talking to the public, you have to say, this is a problem. This is Mm -hmm. missing. This is what the author said. This is what the author does. And it doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that can be a shock, Mm -hmm. especially then when you're at the same time, you're upending the Mm -hmm. hierarchy when you have the lowest going for the highest. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I mean, I, t- I tend to not talk about academic scholarship in that particular way that I'll, I'll kind of reference uh, works of research when they're kind of relevant to something thematically that I'm talking about. But I don't actually really do a critique of academic scholarship for the most part on on the podcast that, as I said, I critique films where I, you know, really am, you know, the, pe- the people who make them will never even hear it. I'm quite sure nobody in the academy is going to be upset about the fact that I'm critiquing, you know, this film about a historical event um, uh, that, you know, the that to some extent, you know, the kind of public history that I do is a kind that to some extent is is safer given those power relationships. Yeah. And of course, I went straight into the hornet's nest. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's also important because what we are involved in is production of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that also the problem with the hierarchy is that the higher up you get, the less likely you are to hear criticism. Yeah. So maybe, you know, someone hasn't had anything bad to say about your work for 10 years, but that doesn't mean that your work is necessarily good. It's because Mm -hmm. you are in a power position where someone can't really tell you that, you know, there's a problem here. I decided to include book reviews of academic books on my blog because I want to have a conversation about historical research mm-hmm. uh, today. And also because I noticed that if I review books, for example, historical fiction, very few historians write historical fiction. And I mm-hmm. felt that when I reviewed historical fiction or when I reviewed popular history it feels as if i am punching down uh-huh because i have you know com- compared to a, a popular historian who maybe has a, a master's in history mm-hmm. from 15 years ago and is writing a book book comes into my hands mm-hmm. then of course as a teacher and as a researcher with a doctorate i'm going to i mean i could i could just crush it yeah you know and that wouldn't be fair either Mm-hmm. So I, I I chose this path of, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basically punching up because, you know, we need to have a discussion about what is coming out. Uh, mm-hmm. People need to know about research. And it's also a way of showing that this is the research that is being done in history departments at a time when history departments existence mm-hmm. is being challenged. That, yeah. you know, we are leeches on society, that we're not contributing yeah. anything, we are indoctrinating students, and, you know, and this is a way of showing that this is the research that's being done. 
Mm-hmm. And this is, these are the books that are out there that you can read yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are at the forefront of, of knowledge production. We are not reactionary. We are not, you know, liars. Uh, this mm-hmm. is what we're doing. But yeah. then again, uh, I have to choose my integrity. So if there mm-hmm. is an issue with a book that mm-hmm. claims to do something that it doesn't, then mm-hmm. I need to, I need to address it. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, you know, the, the punching up versus punching down too. That's actually part of the reason that I, I actually do relatively little written historical fiction that for, for films, at least I feel like I can just say these people have more money than, and power in a lot of ways than I will ever have. And so I feel like, you know, that that's sort of fine, but that it feels different. So if it's, you know, a book, especially by somebody who's an emerging author, if I am not going to be mostly complimentary, I'm very hesitant to cover that work. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a relationship with a publicist for about a year now. Uh, she's mm-hmm. been sending me historical fiction. And I wrote a review of a book. It's the book that I talked about, the the knight who lost his faith in mm-hmm. 14th century uh, England. And the review I wrote of that book was pretty scathing because it was mm-hmm. written by I it was written by a thriller author together with his sister. And his sister was actually she is actually a medievalist who is working mm-hmm. at a museum. Mm-hmm. But I I I I tore it apart because it mm-hmm. wasn't a good book. And that's when I decided yeah. that, you know what? I'm not doing fiction anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, you know, it's not fair. Yeah. So yeah, so as I said, when I've when I've done fiction, it's mostly been things that I have read and really sort of, you know, honestly and with integrity feel I can, you know, even if I have critiques, as I said, that I can be kind of mostly positive about that I I'm kind of at the point where I I'm very hesitant to do fiction if I would be reluctant to say try tagging the author on Twitter in uh what I have to say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel that, you know historians should be able to take it mm-hmm. because that is what we do we yeah criticize each other's work mm-hmm. so you should be able to take it so i think that it it, it could be more that you know who is doing it yeah and where. yeah and <laughs> right right and uh well and of course as you said before right that especially maybe as you you kind of become more of a kind of powerful figure within the academy that maybe you're a little less willing to take criticism in a lot of cases yeah exactly and if you have this idea of yourself as a some kind of scholar and then someone else you know uh, someone lower on the scale says well actually you're not what you're saying that you are mm-hmm. and you know I see this in the book where you claim that you're doing something yeah then that could that could that could hurt right yeah but, yeah so it goes back to the discussion about you know are we going to publish bad reviews and it's like mm-hmm. no we're not going to publish bad reviews but we need to publish balanced reviews mm-hmm and honest reviews. Yes. The last thing that I wanted to uh, have a little bit of a conversation about before we finish up is that both of us, of course, as we've touched on a couple of times, uh, our work, of course, also involves teaching. How do you see the relationship between your work as a public medievalist and your teaching? Are these things that you think inform one another? Uh, Do you share your public-facing work with your students? Has it impacted the way you teach? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I came up with a pitch for an article 
when I was, because uh, I, I teach a, a course about Viking history, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the Vikings or Viking Age Scandinavians, I should say, because the Vikings weren't a people. Uh, but Viking mm-hmm. Age Scandinavians, uh, specifically in Sweden, they carved runes into rocks. So we still have those texts, right? So there are mm-hmm. thousands of them. Like I think it's like, what is it? Two or 3,000 of these carvings in Sweden alone, most of them just north of Stockholm. And they're still standing. So if you go there, you know, you can walk around in yeah. a landscape where Viking Age Scandinavians have left messages for you. It's really, really mm-hmm. cool. But they're very, very short. They're very, mm-hmm. very formulaic. But at the same time, you know, they are they're kind of bragging, right? Uh-huh. Is either uh, usually it's uh, they're they're erected over people who have died usually, and mm-hmm. it's like you know so and so raised this stone in memory of this person who was a very good person, and yeah, carved. But then there are those who you know I raised this stone over myself because this is my <laughs> farm. I own this land and I created this place or, you know, I raised this stone of myself because I went to England and I came back filthy rich. Um, <laughs> so, so a student asked me, was like, how would, how would you explain what these are? And then I realized mm-hmm. that they're tweets. Huh. They're short, they're formulaic. It's mm-hmm. just a number of characters. You have to get a lot of information in there and you're boosting yourself. Showing everybody yeah. who clever you are, how smart you uh-huh. are, you know, stuff you've done, or, you know, you're talking about, you know, because social media mourning is a thing, uh-huh. right? Somebody yeah. dies, either a family member or a celebrity, and you express mm-hmm. your grief on, on social media. And then I pitched that to the week. Mm-hmm. And that became a collaboration over six months with an editor. And then COVID happened and everything shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I worked with the week for about six months. And wrote for them regularly. And I was interviewed on Australian radio about mm-hmm. Viking runic carvings as tweets. Hmm. And that just came because I needed yeah. a way for the student to understand what these runic mm-hmm. inscriptions are like. Yeah. And I also have, I mean, I use the blog posts on the boomerang mm-hmm. in my uh, history of history course uh, on the very, very first day of class they uh read a blog post of mine called uh historical truth versus historical validity where mm-hmm. we're talking about that you know uh a historian with integrity will never talk about truth because mm-hmm. there is no historical truth right um so that's one of the mm-hmm. uh texts that i have the, i have the students read and uh, i absolutely believe that teachers should share their Mm -hmm. uh, works with their students because the students are taking our courses for a reason Mm -hmm. and that reason is is the topic and us yeah so if we can show them you know like who we are and what we can do as teachers I I I strongly believe in that so you Mm -hmm. know I get ideas from from teaching that I pitch and uh, I also use the stuff that I have written to uh, say something to Mm -hmm. to get the students to to sort of see something from a new uh, perspective. That's great. I've always been a little hesitant to officially use the podcast in teaching, which is uh, in part just because I I speak differently 
and in particular, I, I swear a lot on this podcast is uh, actually, I would say probably the main thing is that I, I swear a lot on the podcast. And the other thing actually, to be honest, is that I, I do actually talk about politics on this podcast in ways that I don't necessarily always feel like I should in the classroom, which I know is a risk and do anyway. But I'm always, I don't hide it exactly, but I also don't uh, require students to listen to listen to the podcast. And, mm-hmm. and I kind of always go back and forth as to whether I should kind of more overtly reference it in the course that I teach that is a medieval at the movies course where everything that I'm actually showing them I have covered on the podcast. I always kind of think like, well, if anybody actually finds it, they're really going to get a leg up uh, in in the class because uh, they're going to like get the advanced preview of all the things I'm going to complain about with this movie. Mm. But I, I have yet to actually kind of overtly use it, but certainly I feel like it informs my teaching a lot. And it, uh, and because of that, I actually spend a lot of time starting with talking about myths about the Middle Ages, because I feel like that's often something that we really need to kind of work to debunk at the beginning of class. So I actually, in my, I'm teaching a medieval law course this semester and started by Showing my students first an interview with uh, with an actor that he had done after making a film set in the Middle Ages, where, among other things, he claimed that there uh, there was no law and no repercussion for murder in the Middle Ages. Okay. Uh, which, as medievalists, uh, we know is not quite right in that one. Uh, <laughs> And the other thing that I showed them was the SNL cold open that I think was done after the leaking of uh, the Roe v. Wade draft decision, uh, which of course is in fact what basically it ended up being, but that there is this SNL cold open, which essentially the point was Alito cited some medieval, some kind of 13th century English law. So let's essentially make this whole skit talking about basically how medieval law is just immoral and absurd. Right. Yeah, there's there's so much to to unpack there. But I think that when it comes to politics, the, the way that the situation of medieval studies right now mm-hmm. is that the way that we choose to teach the Middle Ages is a political statement. Yeah. It has become that way. Yeah. I have said for many years that, you know, out of all the liberal arts, history is the one that has been used for political purposes, mm-hmm. either by historians themselves or people from outside. Um, yes. It's, you don't do that with literary studies or religious mm-hmm. studies. But with history, because history was involved in the creation of the nation states, mm-hmm. um, history is is political. Mm-hmm. What I think that we need to be careful with is being partisan. So I wrote this thing for uh, the Daily Beast where I talked about, yeah, I think it was the one where I talked about, you know, the, the connection between white supremacy and uh, Viking. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, I was talking to a colleague about this because she wanted to use this text in class. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the text itself I mean it was political but it wasn't partisan but Mm -hmm. um, for those who don't know when you write texts for media publications the author does not determine the headline and we Mm -hmm. don't determine the image yeah we have no saying that I'm of course we you know you submit a text with a headline but if that headline survives fine it probably won't though Mm -hmm. um so you don't dis- uh, determine the headline, you don't determine the image. So here I had written this text, it was political, talking about, you know, white supremacies and Vikings. They kept my headline, but they put 
an image of a Viking helmet with horns. Mm -hmm. Historically incorrect, but it's funny. So, okay. But dangling from one of the horns was a red MAGA hat. Mm -hmm. And that's when it became partisan. And we couldn't use it in class. Because mm -hmm. you can't you can't remove the image right it's online so i think that we history is political and the way that mm -hmm. you choose to interpret the middle ages today is a political stance you mm -hmm. know are you traditional is it white people within christendom and it's europe and it's unique or is it diverse is it you know the muslim world the jewish world interacting with a christian world and you know more mm -hmm. than one ethnicity that is political yeah uh, but what we can avoid doing is being partisan and i think that that's uh i think that we conflate that and then we don't mm -hmm. know what to say anymore <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely and and they are different and then that i would say is kind of another another specific hesitation that i tend to have about about sharing the podcast kind of explicitly with my students is that there is a difference. And I, the way I teach medi the medieval period is political, but in a classroom, I don't make statements that are partisan. And the podcast I do, I, I will be straightforward about that, that I, that I say a number of things that make very clear what precisely my own partisan politics are in ways, as I said, that I would not say those things in a classroom, which is also not the choice that everybody makes for good reason in public history, but is the choice that I made, you know, which then does, I think, kind of you know, raise interesting questions, right, about whether and how you use that in a teaching setting. Yeah, because it also shows that, you know, as a public historian, you have to create a persona, right? Yeah. What do you want to show the, the world? And what you're showing mm -hmm. the world is not necessarily what you're showing, you know, academia. So you mm -hmm. need to, uh, you need to make diff a different set of uh, decisions mm -hmm. uh, to be able to maintain your integrity as a public historian and maintain yeah. your integrity as an academic historian and i think that also is one of the reasons why academics sort of feel uncomfortable with yeah. going outside of academia because you have to present yourself in a, in a different way you have yeah. to actually you can't uh, refer to to the work you actually have to refer mm -hmm. to yourself you have to yeah. write in first person you have to speak in mm -hmm. first person you have to speak your beliefs so that your audience mm -hmm. understands where you are uh, coming from yeah. meanwhile in in um you know in academia we write in third person instead of saying i wrote this it says mm -hmm. the article says yeah yeah but the article yeah. doesn't speak it's a thing right <laughs> right exactly it, it is in fact you speaking and it is something that i do think is you know, not that we don't have integrity as historians, but that it is something that it disguises the way in which every single piece that is that is written by a historian, it's written by a person who is coming about that from a particular position, from a set of biases, from a set of opinions. And to some extent, I think it would be better if those were more overtly acknowledged. I think it is a, a good thing that increasingly as historians, we do acknowledge that none of us, in fact, are objective in terms of how we are coming at history. And that's in terms of the questions that we ask, it's in terms of how we interpret the evidence, that our perspectives and our biases always shape that. And I think there are ways in which maybe that becomes a little bit more overt and we don't necessarily always maintain as much of that fiction of objectivity in our public history versus in, uh, in our work that is uh, kind of more uh, meant for the academic community. Yeah, but I'm starting actually to... to um 
move more towards using the first person in academic studies mm -hmm. also i used to be when i when i gave uh, uh writing prompts for students mm -hmm. to write their papers i was like you have to write in third person now i'm more like you know what it's okay to use first person i mean yeah. don't turn it into an you know your an essay or, yeah. or you know don't turn it into a journal uh, mm -hmm. or an opinion piece but you know you you are allowed to to mm -hmm. to, to be there and uh, one of the things that i do in my history of history class is that i have the students read an article that I published in History and Theory. This is the article where I debunked my own origin and saying that, you mm -hmm. know, the reenactment play didn't actually happen where mm -hmm. it happened. And I tell them, you know, find me in here. Mm -hmm. I'm in here. Find me. Yeah. And they don't know where to look because they're looking mm -hmm. for I or, you know, we. Yeah. But I'm saying, you know, it's like here, the article, the text, as will be proven. That's all me. That's yeah. me. But that, yeah, that, but that there has, I mean, and I, and I also have like moved towards saying it's, it's better that there's something to be said, I think, for saying, I will argue this as opposed to it will be argued, it will be demonstrated, it will be proven, you know, these, these kind of passive voices or these things that kind of give this agency to the article when, yeah. as you said, right, the article does not in fact speak. It's, it's us. We are the writers. We have created this. Yeah. And then, and then we can sort of hide behind the text, especially, mm -hmm. you know, if there's controversy then, you know, we can, we distance ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. that, I think that's also uh, one of the reasons why there are such big dust-ups within history mm -hmm. and specifically within yeah. medieval history that, you know, when someone is actually being held accountable for what they are mm -hmm. writing in passive third person, mm -hmm. when, when the, when the it becomes an I, mm -hmm. the, the person who wrote it feels attacked because we mm -hmm. have been trained to, to put a distance between ourselves and our writings by mm -hmm. expressing ourselves this way as yeah. if it's history talking, as if it's the primary source mm -hmm. talking, Well, it's not the primary source talking. It's your interpretation of the mm -hmm. primary source talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These clashes are so interesting because they, they also, I think reveal a lot of the ways, right. In which you do in fact, take it personally that you maintain this posture of distance perhaps in the way that you write but it's still your work and you still feel very personal ways when that work is potentially criticized. Uh, and that sometimes these conflicts do, do I think, make kind of reveal that the extent to which you do have this kind of personal investment and presence and voice in your own work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's a, it, it becomes an interesting sort of contradiction in how we how we relate to our work and how we view our work because in one way you know we defend ourselves by saying that you know it's the previous research it's the sources I'm just sort of the the vessel but when someone is actually pointing the finger at mm -hmm. you that's when you it, it, it I think it, it it produces a crisis because we have yeah. been told that we are objective we express ourselves in an objective distanced way which means that you know it isn't us and then mm -hmm. someone goes to say that, yeah, well, you know, you can't say that you are anti-racist if you express yourself this way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but the idea is that I am not yeah. expressing myself this way because it's the right. article. It's source. Mm -hmm. it yes, but it's you. And then that's when people, you know, yeah. enter into a, a state of crisis. And for that reason, I do think that, you know, having that kind of emphasis, even for our students, right, on just I'm reminding them that no, in fact, you're you're not actually going to be objective because we can't be objective. That always uh, your your work as a historian is going to be shaped by you in really fundamental ways. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we have we have used objectivity as a as a defense and a weapon. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. that, you know, we, we attack others with objectivity and we protect mm-hmm. ourselves with objectivity. But if we look mm-hmm. through sort of the, the, the sort of the mirror of what objectivity mm-hmm. is, or this mirage of, of what of objectivity is, you do find the person and that's when you get, you know, these big conflicts and, and, and uh, that can turn rather ugly. Yeah. Yeah. As, as we've seen uh, on, on medieval Twitter uh, in on many occasions recently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also one thing that, you know, as a public historian, you need to learn how to, how to handle, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you are drawn into these uh, public disputes and then you have to, to just, I have found myself that I have to decide, you know, where, where is my mm-hmm. integrity? Where is my loyalty? Is mm-hmm. it to the person? who is part of a feud or is it to who I am? Because if you mm-hmm. go too far in your loyalty towards someone in academia, it's going to hurt your integrity. But if you yeah. are also going too far in your loyalty in someone in the public platform, that will hurt your integrity mm-hmm. uh, too. Yeah. That it is a challenge and especially in this space, right. Of something like Twitter where there's, I mean, where, where there are sort of so many kind of additional challenges, I think, in terms of just the, the additional challenges of expressing yourself, right? That you're expressing yourself in this kind of very brief and potentially, therefore, kind of easily misunderstood way, uh, where you're often, I find often on Twitter, I kind of start by getting kind of pieces of information, and it often takes me a very long time to kind of then get feel like I've gotten the whole story, uh, and there, on the one hand, is this kind of desire, right, to respond and be part of a conversation, um, and then, you know, you might find out additional kind of things later and you're like, oh, I have this other piece of this con- of this kind of conversation and of this story that I didn't actually know when I said something before. And there's... Yeah. And if I had known, I wouldn't have said it. Right. You know, I probably wouldn't right. have gotten involved um, right. in the first time, in the first place. But at the same time, I find that medieval Twitter is also a much more generous place than mm-hmm. academia. Oh, Yeah. You can just, you know, you can show that you don't know something. You can show mm-hmm. that you need help. You can ask for advice. You can reach mm-hmm. out to find uh, literature. And that's not something that you would necessarily do within the academic setting because mm-hmm. you can't show that you don't know anything. Right. Yeah. That it allows you to kind of have this moment in which you kind of acknowledge others' expertise and uh, kind of have this ability to crowdsource in ways that. Yeah, that you often don't feel that you're quite able to do necessarily, uh, and certainly at least, you know, depend, depending on potentially the specific setting that you're been that you're in. But that often, I think, where we're taught that once you're you've kind of achieved this status of expert, you're there's only limited ways in which you get to still ask for help. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, you know, what does it say? You live by Twitter, you die by Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Twitter. So Erica, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Yeah. And as a, as a bit of a preview also for the listeners, they should all wait eagerly to expect your return since you are going to be rejoining it to talk about the uh, hotly anticipated and very grave film Medieval. Yes, that is going to be... Yeah, that's going to be a blast in many ways, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very curious about what that movie is going to end up being. Yeah, I mean, I watched the trailer and, and okay, yeah. so so the book that I've been working on for my own pleasure uh is about a medieval manuscript from Bohemia, which is today mm-hmm. part of the Czech Republic. Uh and uh, Bohemia in the 15th century uh descended into civil war uh called the Hussite Wars. 
uh, and it is one it is the first you know like civil war within over christian doctrine you know like a hundred years before martin luther um and the leader of the dissidents is called jan zishka and i watched the trailer for medieval and i was like what is this movie i have no idea who these people are (laughs) And then I then I heard from someone else on Twitter that it's about John Zishka. And I was like, what? So now I have to watch it because he is from medieval Bohemia, just like my manuscript. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was but it was nothing in the in the um, in the trailer that actually revealed that it is this person and he is an absolutely formidable person because he mm-hmm. he is a you know, he was a general in the Hussite Wars. He entered into the war he was well into his 50s which you know as a fighting person even Mm -hmm. today is old and then you know in the middle ages you know the wear and tear on his body he had one eye and during the fightings during the Hussite wars he lost the other eye so by the end of the war he was completely blind he was still leading the troops you know he's an absolutely amazing figure but these are you know in his formative years so uh, yeah I had no I had no idea (laughs) Well, the trailer, based on my watch, it seems desperately insistent on being extremely generic, which then kind of shows up in the title, right? That it's just called medieval. And and I understand why it's not called Jishka for an American yeah. audience. Yeah. But you would have think you would think they could have done better than medieval. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, what what is that? I mean, I don't know. It's uh, an adjective. Um, Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it looked it looked like a a damsel in distress story, Mm -hmm. which I thought was didn't look very, you know, (laughs) never a good sign. Yeah. it, It again, it looked like you know, why don't you just read the sources? Yes. Yes. Uh, as well as, of course, one of the many movies where, man, if there's like a grayscale filter that somebody has, I really just want to take it away and burn it. Uh, yeah exactly i mean i i was thinking about that when i watched the northmen Mm -hmm. and knowing you know how much vikings loved bling yeah yeah like no it's not a speck of color Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they were they were wearing you know silks and beads and Mm -hmm. and and, you know metal and jewelry Mm -hmm. and you know in just one big mishmash of of stuff and then it's just mud yep yeah <laughs> but on the other hand yep. medieval might actually turn out to be a great movie who knows we know that we will see we, we will attempt to go into it objectively even though we all know that that's not really going to be possible no <laughs> <laughs> before we finish up are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they so desired i i know there are and we've already touched on some of them but if you want to make sure to share at the end Yes. So my Twitter handle is at E-H underscore Kern, K-E-R-N. So that's uh, at E-H underscore K-E-R-N. And uh, the boomerang, you'll find that at ehkern.com. All right. Great. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Iftdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. 
So Erica, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.